Okay. Um, I think we have a winner here. This is Bhagavad Gita as it is, the translation of Purport by Srila Prabhupada. And uh, this is chapter 9, text 2. Thank you very much. Um, so I'll read the Sanskrit first and then we'll. <laughs> oh, wow. We give it. We give it our best shot, right? Uh, read the, the Sanskrit and then the English, and Prabhupada's purport, and then we'll talk about it. And also, we're going to have a um, questions and answers, all that stuff. Okay. So here's the verse: Raja Vidya. Rajaguhyam Kavitramidam Uttamam Pratyakshavagamam Dharmyam Susukam Karatumabhyayam Prabhupada's translation, this knowledge is the king of education, the most secret of all secrets. It is the purest knowledge. And because it gives direct perception of the self by realization, it is the perfection of religion. It is everlasting and joyfully performed. And so Prabhupada wrote a long purport on this verse. Actually, let's see. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Four or five pages. So I'll read just, just the beginning of his purport and then we'll discuss from there. So this is Prabhupada. Prabhupada begins his purport by saying, This chapter of Bhagavad Gita is called the King of Education because it is the essence of all doctrines and philosophies explained before. Among the principal philosophers in India are Gotama, Kanada, literally the particle eater. Uh, Kanada, because he had a theory of sort of atomism, everything's made of atoms, so history remembered him somewhat facetiously as the. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> So history has remembered uh, this philosopher somewhat facetiously as, as the particle eater, uh, because he was into theory of everything made of atoms. Kanada, uh, Kapila, Yajnavalkya, Sandili, and Vaishwanara, and finally there is Vyasadeva, the author of Vedanta Sutra. So there is no dearth of knowledge in the field of philosophy or transcendental knowledge. Now the Lord says that this ninth chapter is the king of all such knowledge the essence of all knowledge that can be derived from the study of the Vedas and different kinds of philosophy. It is most confidential because confidential or transcendental knowledge involves understanding the difference between the soul and the body. And the king of all confidential knowledge culminates in devotional service. So, Prabhupada Kijai. So, so let's look over closely the, the Sanskrit here and uh, see what there is to see. So Lord Krishna begins by saying, uh, Raja Vidya. So the word Vidya, of course, from the same Sanskrit root Vit, which means to, or Vit, to know, from the root from which you get Veda, and we have many cognate words in Western languages. For example, English words that are directly related to vid or veda are vision, video, uh, Italian vedere, to see, uh, German wissen, to know, 
uh, English wit, in the sense of intelligence, and so on. So, uh, from this powerful Sanskrit root, to know, we, we have still have so many echoes in, in European languages, Western languages, and from this root here we have the word vidya, just a, a, a feminine noun formed from the same root, and uh, a word often used to mean science or, or knowledge. And so here Krishna calls this knowledge, vidya, raja vidya. Raja, of course, means king, Latin rex, and, you know, Spanish rey. English royal, and so on. So we have this word raja, king, so, so literally king knowledge, or as Prabhupada translates it, the king of, of knowledge. And then Krishna says raja guhyam, which uh, translated here, uh, the king of, con- uh, Prabhupada calls it the, the king of confidential knowledge. There is a Sanskrit root, gu, g-u-h, which means to conceal or to hide. For example, guha, means a cavern, sort of like a secret place. And uh, here the word guhya, a word which Krishna uses actually several times in the Gita, literally means a secret, something which is concealed, and so on. So of course, why is Krishna describing this knowledge as Raja Guhya, the king of secrets or confidential or, or concealed things, when this is a public book? I mean, Krishna is speaking and, and knowingly speaking to the world through Arjuna, and yet this is called Guya, a secret. So, um, if we study, even let's say for the last several hundred years, uh, the history of Gita commentaries, uh, and th- there are so many Gitas in the market because it's a relatively short work, it has 700 verses, the Sanskrit is elegant, but not unusually uh, complicated. And so a lot of people sort of, you know, lent their hand to this, you know, taking a try at translating the Gita. And with all kinds of commentaries, commentaries either by scholars, I mean, Western academics, East Indian academics, uh, people within traditional Hinduism, mystics, you name it. And what's amazing is that um, <coughs> although the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, has a, ultimately a simple, powerful, explicit message which Krishna makes over and over again, people just seem to miss it. And it's right there. I mean, if you know Sanskrit, it's just, it couldn't be more clear. And I, I could give you know, so many examples of what I'm talking about from the Sanskrit text, but there is a, there's a, a, a phrase that you find in, in Vedic literature, you find it several times in the Bhagavatam about this, which is, Pashana pina pashyati. Even seeing, one does not see. Pashana pi. Even seeing, na pashyati, one does not see. Another satisfied customer. <laughs> so, um, This, of course, gets down into very, uh, you could say, meta-epistemological issues. Like, I mean, how do people really know? And, and what's the process by which this gets into psychology and it gets into philosophy? I mean, how do people really understand things? And things can be right in front of our face and we can miss them. We can miss them. And sometimes, you know, the most obvious thing is the last thing that we notice. An example of this, actually, just to give one example of this phenomenon, 
there is a famous story from Mahabharata, the great story of the Pandavas with Krishna, great historical epic of India. And at one point, uh, the Pandavas were in the forest, uh, exiled and uh, struggling and uh, very thirsty. So Yudhisthira, the oldest brother, sent his youngest brother to a lake, a nearby lake, to get water. And there was some person, sort of like, I don't know what you call it, just some mystical person that somehow was guarding the lake and said, before you take this water, you must answer my questions. And Sahadev, the youngest Pandava, who was a great warrior, said, I'll be happy to talk to you, but I'm thirsty right now. So he drank the water and, and died. <coughs> just fell and died on the shore. And then when he didn't come back, Eustace sent the next brother, Sahadev, and the same thing happened. And then the next brother, Arjuna, and then Bhima. And so finally, Eustace himself <coughs> went there and saw what had happened with his brothers. And again, this person said, first you have to answer my questions. So Yudhisthira, Yudhisthira was known as Dharma Raja, the king of Dharma, the king of virtue and justice. And he, he was, of course, extremely virtuous. So he said, all right, I'll answer your question. Because he was thinking, I better satisfy this person so I get my brothers back. Because he sensed this person has the power to bring back my brothers. So this person asked him a series of questions. One of which I want to repeat here because it relates to our concern here. And that is, he asked him, what is the most amazing thing in this world? And again, you just here to save his own life and save his brothers had to answer this question. What is the most amazing thing in this world? And you just here gave the right answer, which was, I'll say it in Sanskrit first, Ahanya hani bhutani gachanti hajamalayam shesha stamrami chanti kimaschari matapparam Which means, uh, Day after day, ahani, ahani. Day after day, all beings, ahani and Bhutan, are going, it says poetically, to the abode of Yama. Yama is the lord of death. This is a typical poetic phrase that they are going to Yama's abode. In other words, they're, they're dying. They're going to the court of death. And then Yudhisthira said, Shesha, those who are left, those who haven't died, Stavanam Ichanti. They're hoping they can stay here in this world. In other words, they're hoping they won't die. And then Yudhisthira said, Kimas Chari What's more amazing than that? And, of course, he won this case of ancient Vedic Jeopardy. <laughs> and it, it turned out that the person asking the questions was his own father, Yama, the Lord of Death, who came to... Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah, who came to, to test his son. And of course all the brothers were brought back and they had a nice, happy family reunion. So, what could be more starkly facing us than our own mortality? And yet, people are hoping against hope. Well, I'm not going to die like today. Guess <laughs> <laughs> my house is not clean yet. <laughs> so, Krishna says that this is... So to understand the Gita, there are all kinds of, uh, how would you say, pitfalls, or the Gita in a sense is, is sort of like, how should I put it? We ourselves are kind of booby-trapped. 
because of our own materialistic propensities. For example, if we read something which we don't wish to take seriously in the Gita, there are various moves you can make. There's the old, that's symbolic. <laughs> that's symbolic. And then you can say that, uh, then, then you can pull, pull the old esoteric trick. Well, it says this, you know, what philosophers call the surface grammar. Like, this is what it actually says. However, that's not what it means. It's like it says turn up. It actually means uh, a radioactive carnage. You know, something really crazy. And people do this. They just, they just um, and ultimately, this um, kind of like this game that people play where if they read a text and they don't like what it says, they claim that, you know, there are different levels and the text says that on the surface, but actually it means something completely different. The problem with that is nothing ultimately then means anything. Uh, you can go to a stop sign and say, well, that really means, you know, accelerate and proceed. <laughs> so the problem with saying that it says this, but it means something completely different, is that then nothing means anything. Then why read the text? Why not just say what you believe in? Just say what you think. And why try to invoke an ancient text in support of your views when the text says something else? But people do this. This is very common. It's, uh, to give one example, Prabhupada used to uh, quote this. In the last verse of the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, last verse of the ninth chapter, Krishna says, Manmana, Bhava, uh, fix your mind in me. Bhava Mad Bhakto, devote yourself to me. Madhyaji, offer to me, sacrifice, make offerings to me. Mam Namaskaru, bow to me. Mami Vaishati, you will come to me alone. Uh, Atmana Matparayana, dedicate yourself to me in that way. What's interesting among many things in this verse is that Krishna mentions himself personally with different forms of the first person singular personal pronoun six times in one sentence. That's a lot. He mentions himself personally six times in one sentence and one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century in terms of uh, renowned was Dr. Radha Krishnan, also the first president of India after independence, and he was an Oxford scholar. And the first line of his commentary on this verse is this doesn't mean we should surrender to Krishna personally. I mean, imagine if you, if you say to someone, give it to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, to me, and then someone claiming to represent you says, Oh, she doesn't mean to her. <laughs> but that's what he does. This is an Oxford scholar. Six times in one sentence, Krishna says, me. And his first line of commentary, he doesn't mean to him. Then he says, it's to the unborn eternal within Krishna. The problem with this, of saying it's really to the unborn eternal within Krishna, is that in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna never remotely talks about an inside and outside of himself. We may talk about ourselves in, in, in saying, for example, that um, I'm going within. Because in the Gita, Krishna clearly explains that we have a physical body, as we all know. And as you get older, it, it 
it seems to grow and become heavier with each day. So, so we have a physical body, and yet we are a soul within. Krishna never talks about himself that way. He never talked about himself as having a material body. In fact, uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, if you want to meditate upon me, meditate upon me as someone who has an inconceivable body, a divine inconceivable body. So the idea that you have to go within Krishna, there's like there's the outside, the visible Krishna, and then the inside, as if he has a physical body and an inner soul. There's nothing like that in the Gita. But that's just an example. Here's an Oxford scholar, Sanskrit scholar, good Sanskritist. And uh, he just totally whiffed. <laughs> they have a good saying in Brazil, because you know in Brazil like soccer is called and then, secondarily, God is God. I spent a lot of time in Brazil. So they have this saying in Brazil, Pisou na bola. In a sense, Portuguese here. Which means literally like, oh, he stepped on the ball. Like, if you're playing soccer and you step on the ball, you know, you, you flip yourself. So to say that someone really blew it, they say, stepped on the ball. So the Dr. Roger Christian kind of stepped on the ball. <laughs> anyway... So then Krishna says about this knowledge, he's talking about the, about, about the Bhagavad Gita in general and what he's going to teach her. He says it, it is the greatest, the king of, of knowledge, of sciences, and most, he says it is most, uh, go ahead. So, then again, another reason why people can't understand the Gita, although it's laid out in front of them. What's that great line from the George Harrison song, uh, You Can Lead a Horse to Water? What was one of the lines? You can have it all laid out in front of you, but it don't make you think. In rock songs, you're allowed to use background, <laughs> like, it don't make you. It's part of the profession. So, you can have it all laid out in front of you, but it don't make you think. <laughs> so, um, Krishna also says in chapter 15 of the Gita that Sarvasya I am situated in everyone's heart. For me come memory, knowledge, and, the de- and, and, and denial. Actually, literally, opponent. Sometimes translate forgetfulness. <coughs> so, even if someone asks you your name, and, and if you can answer correctly, you can just say, <coughs> of course, I know my name. But actually, uh, it's, it's actually Krishna, God in the heart, that's reminding you. And so, if Krishna also says, Nam Prakasya Sarvasya, Yoga Maya Samabrita, I'm not revealed to everyone. I'm covered by my own mystic power. It's like the sun. The sun can evaporate water and, and conceal itself. And then the sun itself burns away the clouds. So the sun covers and discovers or uncovers itself. In the same way Krishna conceals himself. So when Krishna, I mean, it, it's it's Sanskrit. Not it's not. This is not childish Sanskrit. It's it's elegant Sanskrit. But it's you know it's sort of basic Sanskrit. 
And uh, it's there in the public domain for thousands of years, and yet people just miss it. And they miss it by a mile. I mean, for all these reasons. For all these reasons. So then Krishna says, this knowledge of pavitramidamuttamam, it is the, this is the supreme purifier. And this is something which Krishna has already discussed in chapter 4 of the Gita, this is chapter 9. Knowledge is purifying. What is that great saying? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Same idea. So Krishna talks a lot in the Gita. He refers to uh, knowledge as pavitram, purifier. We have the English word pure, Sanskrit root. I mean, you know, if we pronounced without the Y, sort of like the, uh, that old English affectation of putting a Y in front of it. Anyway, it's phonetics. So, you know, P-U, P-U-R-E. So Sanskrit root pu, P-U, means pure. So it's actually, it's the same word in Sanskrit. English is this Indo-European language. So then from that root pu, you get pavitram. So, it's a, so knowledge is purifying if you really understand something. If you really, for example, if you really understand that it's because you're eating a particular food that you have a pain somewhere in your body, if you really get that, then that knowledge frees you from the desire to eat that food if you, if you want to be free of pain. Or let's say, for example, I'm in, I'm in some kind of relationship and I've treated the other person a certain way and then like one day I get it, oh my God, I'm really not treating this person properly. I really haven't appreciated this person. I've really been unfair. I've been unkind. And so one can feel that remorse. One, one can have that knowledge and, and in, in a sense it, it purifies your heart and you, you want to do the right thing. Or you can realize that there's really a God. There's actually a God and that, um, and that as Vedanta says, that the absolute truth is the source of everything. I mean, imagine, for example, if you, you know, it's like the, for example, it's a typical story, people have adopted parents and let's say they love their adopted parents, but at a certain point in their life they want to meet their birth parents. It's, I mean, I've, I've run across this many, many times just in dealing with so many people. They want to meet their birth parents. It just it means something special to them. And so, ultimately, to find out the source of our existence, like, where do I really come from? My body comes from a biological tradition, a genealogy, but where do I come from? I, the soul. So when you have this realization that actually I'm part of God, that I've always existed, and this present life, in which I'm doing business as a particular kind of material body, a male or female, so many years old, this color, that ethnicity, whatever. Uh, that's just my body. It's like, imagine you bought your clothes, let's say you bought some clothes at Macy's. I, by the way, I take endorsements. I was, Macy's paid me handsomely, knowing the, the power, you know, how influential my lectures are. I, you know what I should do? I should be like those bicycles, like those cyclists, and I, I should sell like patches and Well, advertisers are compatible. Yeah. Anyway, so let's say you buy your shirt somewhere. Like at Macy's, or your, and your shirt and pants, or your, whatever, and then you start to think, oh my God, I come from Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> my eternal mother is Macy's. 
Yeah. Some women think that. Yeah. I dress, therefore I am. So. Right, some men, I mean, there are dudes out there. Dude used to have a meaning apart from. Dude. You. Or a guy, or used to actually. Anyway. So, just as we are not our clothes. that meaning? What's that? Are you going to tell us that meaning? Well, dude, like a dude ranch. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, you know, it yeah. comes from a dude ranch where sometimes yeah. city slickers <coughs> go out to the Wild West and like you know, want to have a, like a cowboy experience. They called them dudes because they were, you know, they were not rough and they were not ready and they were just kind of like. A male dressed up in clean clothes. And... Yeah. So anyway, just as we are not our clothes and, we're, and we don't come from where our clothes come from, <laughs> Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that our body is like the garments of clothing of the soul. He says, Vasamsi Jirnani, Jatavihaya. Just as the soul casts off worn out garments, Navani Granati Naro Parani, and a person takes new clothes. So Tata Sharidani Bihaya Jirnani. So we cast off worn out bodies, we take new bodies. So nationalism, for example, which is usually based on the country of your birth. There's of course a lot of moving around different countries nowadays, but I mean still, let's say you're born in a certain country, that's where my body is born, or my body is born within a certain gene pool called a family. And so, I'm not saying that we should have no concern for a country or family, we should just know where we really come from, who we really are, we really are eternal souls. If you think about it, it's uh, truly awesome, in the old sense of the word. It's, um, it, it provokes awe. It provokes awe. It, it, that we've always existed. Krishna says in the Gita, Natve Vaham Jatunasa. There never was a time, Krishna says, when I did not exist. So if I'm part of God, and God has always existed, you know, connect the dots. We've always existed. Because it's not that, let's say, a few million years ago, God was less than he is now. So if we are part of God, and God has always existed, we've always existed. And we don't, this, some people have a little trouble with this, but I, I don't know. I'll try to say it as simply as I can. It's not that we just existed a very long material time ago. Like, was that before the dinosaurs? It's, it's rather that we as spiritual beings exist above the whole system of material time. There's a system of material time, you know, past, present, and future, and we actually exist in a different dimension. But because we identify with a physical body, which in fact is caught in the system of material time, it didn't exist, it came into being, it exists for some time, and then it vanishes, it just, you know, dissolves. It just dissolves and... and, and. So, if, you, if we identify with the physical body, we psychologically, not really, this is not really happening, but psychologically we are imposing on ourselves the conditions of the body. Well, I hope he's all right. <laughs> oh, we'll stop him, let's ask. In other words, for example, let's say you hear a, a 
screech of tires, and then crash, and glass breaking, metal bending. And you think your car's been hit, or you know, let's say, unfortunately, you forgot to make that insurance payment. And, then, and you, you think your car's just been totaled, and you're suffering, then you look out the window, actually it wasn't my car. Or maybe it was just like someone playing sound effects on their, you know, blaster or whatever. So, in other words, so we impose on ourselves, we impose on ourselves the mortality of the body. So we think, I was born, I'm dying. When in fact, none of these things are happening to us. It is a virtual reality machine, this body. I remember I, uh, I, I saw this little clip where at Disney World, I think it was, uh, they have this, or maybe I was there, maybe I was actually at Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I was abducted and taken to Disneyland. <laughs> anyway. They did horrible experiments to you. Actually, I went to Disneyland so much when I was a kid that it, and my high school grad night, that was like the end, I'll never go back to Disneyland. So... Anyway, they had this ride, like this ride to the stars or outer space or something. And in this ride, it, it, it's just, you know, it's just all virtual, but it looks like you're about to crash on some planet. People really duck and shout and everything. And, but it's just, it's just a virtual reality. So, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Pitaha Masya Jagato, I'm the father of this world. Mata, the mother. Fathers and mothers don't injure their children. Yeah, you make it a little spanking, this that. But a loving father and mother doesn't injure their children. So in the same way, come on in, Bob. Yeah. So this life is just one big spanking? Is that what you're I guess it depends on the life you got, but... <laughs> But what, what Krishna does is, what God does is, He puts over you, you are an eternal soul, He places over you a virtual reality machine. And all the injuries, all the pain, the birth and death, it's actually not happening to us. It's happening to the virtual reality machine. Now, you could say, well, that's not a nice thing to do to someone. <laughs> but the fact is, that it's only to the extent, it's only to the extent that we try to exploit the physical world that we are drawn into this identification with the machine. In other words, that we behave ourselves. If we realize that actually this whole universe, and, and much more, because the, the, the Vedic literature speaks of millions and billions of universes. Carl Sagan, the late Carl Sagan, who... Uh, Almost became a theist, actually, on his deathbed, but just was a near miss with theism. <laughs> but Carl Sagan, in those TV shows he used to do, he said that the, that among ancient cosmologies, because every ancient culture had some version, some idea about where the universe comes from. So among ancient cosmologies, the only one which can really totally compare with modern science in terms of its scope, its sophistication, and so on, the, the size of the cosmogonic picture is, of course, the Vedic, the Vedic culture. So the Vedic culture talks about million, billions of universes. Billions of universes. So, if we acknowledge the simple fact that it belongs to somebody 
the universe. I mean, all the universes. It's like when you're a kid, you know, you have good parents and you, you start messing with someone else's property and your parents pull you aside and say, no, no, that's not yours. That belongs to so-and-so. Well, the universe belongs to someone. Belongs <coughs> to the person that made it. Even Karl Marx would have to accept that, right? Like whoever makes something is the legitimate owner. So, the universe belongs to someone. And so this idea that, for example, people say it's my body, or my house, or my... I mean, obviously, within a conventional sense, in order to have, let's say, normal social dealing, sure, we divide things up, this is your house, this is my house, that's her house, or whatever. Of course. However, and in Sanskrit, there, there's two words. There's Vyabaharika and um, Paramartika. Vyabaharika means, in a conventional sense, it, it's, it's not the ultimate truth of things. It's just something we agree to so that we can live normal life. We can live, for example, let's say I'm applying for a driver's license or, or something like that, and it says, birth date. And I say, I quote the Bhagavad Gita, the Jayate Vita, the soul is never born, never dies. I'm not going to get the driver's license. So even back in ancient times, in Vedic culture, they understood that there's this like conventional social intercourse, and you just have to, you know, don't be a nut. Just, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just go along with this. However, there, that's called Vyabaharika. There's Paramartika, which means, what's the ultimate meaning? So just as when you're filling out an application, and it says, you know, birthday, don't just write out a sermon on the, you know, the soul is never born and never dies. So the same way, if we're speaking about spiritual knowledge, then we do have to be precise and say, the soul is never born and never dies. So sure, on a Vyavaharika level, on a conventional social level, we can say, okay, that's your house, this is my house, this is my family, it's your family. And, and you know, because, for one thing, because we have human bodies, even though we are eternal souls, we have human bodies, and we can't pretend we don't. And these human bodies have a lot of momentum in the sense that your body, it has certain needs, certain desires, your mind, there's uh, emotional momentum, we have emotional needs and propensities and and all that stuff. And so it's like your body is in motion, it has momentum, it has drive. And it's like, let's say you're driving a car at high speed, you realize you're going the wrong direction, you can't just slam on the brakes, you'll just flip your car. So if you're driving at high speed and you realize you're going the wrong direction, there is a gradual process. You tap the brakes, then you start to put on the brakes, and you look for a place to turn around, then you turn around, then you come back. That's how you do it. You don't just like flip your car over the median <laughs> at high speed. Unless you're an evil Knievel, of course. <laughs> so for everyone except evil Knievel. So, so in the same way, let's say we're living our life and we realize that, oh my God, you know, I was just trying to enjoy this body and exploit this world, but actually I'm an eternal soul. I'm like above all this. I have a relationship with an infinitely beautiful being, Krishna. I have unlimited, I have infinite possibilities. I myself have unlimited personal beauty and powers as, as, as a spiritual being, but I'm rejecting all those so I can try to, you know, just... Uh, 
put my snout in the trough of the material world. I'm... <laughs> I'm trying to exploit this world. So once... Once we realize that, you can't just slam on the brakes. Okay, I will never again enjoy a meal. You know, I will never again enter into a relationship. I will never again enjoy anything I see or touch or hear. So, you know, I'm going to burn all my DVDs and CDs. Sure. And so on and so forth. So what what the Bhagavatam teaches us is, that, okay, you're, you know, we're going at high speed in material life. Because in America, everything is high speed. It's just like, the way I put it, the whole modern civilization is mentally hydroplaning. <laughs> you know, it's like you go real fast in a boat and you're above the water. It's like, imagine you're like late for some really important thing and you're really stressed out. And you're like rushing out the door and someone says, can I read you this poem I just wrote? <laughs> and then you control yourself, you don't strangle the person, <laughs> and instead you tell them that, I can't think about that right now. So if you think about it, our whole civilization is so hyper-accelerated, that's the way I look at it, I mean, for many people, it's become physiologically impossible, physiologically impossible to think deeply. So the spiritual life is a sound bite and a consumer product. I'll shop around a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So anyway, when we realize that we're going high speed in the wrong direction, I really need to get on the spiritual path. You can't always just slam on the brakes. We start slowing down, and, and we start, you know, look for a place to turn around. But and sometimes to... life slams on the brakes for you. If that Something happens, Something happens yeah. in your life that just throws your whole life off course, or you're just... You know, I mean, your life is slammed. That can be a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, if, yeah, because let's say you're going the wrong direction and you run into a wall, then, of course, don't do it. You can save your brake pads. <laughs> <laughs> That's So it does happen. I mean, it's true. What you said is true. And sometimes there are, like, we're sort of jolted out of our... Existence. Existence. something existence. else. But the extent to which... The extent to which we have, let's say, discretionary power, then, then we should you know, find the way to gradually turn our life around. And if it's one of those cases where Krishna even says, actually, like you said, he said, that sometimes I bless someone by taking away all their assets. And so sometimes we may just find ourselves sort of like, you know, stripped of everything that was sort of bolstering us materially. And then, of course, that's a great opportunity. So, but knowledge is purifying. If we can really understand this, if we really understand that, that we have unlimited potential, that, you know, rather than... Uh, I mean, think how much money I've saved on cosmetic surgery by understanding Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> <laughs> and think how much you've saved on clothes, too. Yes. <laughs> so... Macy's is kind of pissed off. <laughs> And the idea is that all of us are unlimitedly beautiful. It's, it's because we are divine beings. Our real appearance, what we really look like, not just this body, but what we really look like 
is beautiful beyond our present imagination. Our beauty, our powers, our intelligence. And that's why we're so frustrated in this world because something inside knows I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to have much better than this. And it's just, it, it just never quite works out. It's, it's, it's like this maddening lens that never quite gets into focus. Just when you think it's in focus, it's just... So we are... The three qualities of the soul are sometimes described as Satchitananda. Sat means we are eternal. And so because we are eternal and because therefore mortality is strange and unnatural, mortality is unnatural actually. And that's why if there's danger we try to escape it because it's just, it's not us. And chit means knowledge. By nature we have transparent consciousness. So whatever we gaze at, whatever we train our consciousness on, we see it exactly as it is which is not happening right now. We are in a fog right now, because right now, our perception of everything, our perception of ourself, our perception of physical objects, of other people, is being filtered through our own attachments and aversions. Because we are attached to the material. For example, we are eternal souls, but we can't see ourselves now. Because we're attached to the body, we're attached to being the body, we're attached to trying to be a really hot body, and so, therefore, um, we can't see ourselves. Krishna says that, that he uses this term in the Gita, avritam jnanam, our awareness is covered, it's covered by our selfish desires. For example, let's say a man is very lusty. And he meets a girl that he finds very attractive. And he's just like, let's say he's got a one-track mind. He's trying to, you know, do you know what. He, he doesn't have the power or the luxury or the ability to understand this is not an object of your gratification. This is a person. This is, this is a soul. This is someone that's part of God. This is someone that has an eternal future. And so, I mean, I, the stronger our desires are, the less we can see who other people really are. We just, we just see them with that narrow lens. Oh, I'm hungry. You can give me food. I need money. You can buy my product. You know, I'm lusty. You can satisfy my lust. I am really needy. I really want praise. You can flatter me. So I'm going to try to, you know, drop all kinds of hints. So, the extent to which we have selfish desires, to that extent we see people only as beings meant to satisfy our selfish desires. We can't see who they really are. This is called the, you know, the sort of the illusion of, of objectification, the sense that every one of us is a subject. Every one of us is a subject of our own consciousness. But if I am self-centered instead of God-centered, if I'm selfish instead of loving... Uh, then I see you not as the subject of your own life, but as an object of my pleasure. Or an object of my displeasure, in which case I can get rid of you. So, uh, so this knowledge, if we can really open our hearts and brains to this fact that we are eternal souls, and so is everybody else. There is no one available out there for exploitation. 
There is, there's not a single person in the universe whom I can legitimately exploit in any way. Financially, sexually, uh, just trying to you know use them to, to build up my self-esteem. There is no one in the world, no one in the universe exists for the purpose of gratifying my selfish uni- uh, desires. Every living thing on earth and in the universe exists to fulfill their own destiny as a divine being. And so when people realize this about themselves and about each other, you get real relationships. And people don't betray each other, they don't cheat each other. Uh, real relationships. So, so this knowledge is purifying. And then Krishna says, among. You can perceive it directly. It's not that you believe it on faith and you die, you just pray, I hope I got that one right. <laughs> it's not like that. In fact, Krishna consciousness is so powerful. There's a story of Didichi Muni. It was this great sage, I mean, long, long ago, eons ago, literally. And Didichi, uh, for some reason, Indra, Indra, uh, the god Indra, had to fashion a thunderbolt to sort of defeat evil in the universe. And for some reason, to fashion this thunderbolt, he needed the bones of Didichi Muni's body. So uh, Indra humbly went to Didichi and, you know, sort of this very old Hare Krishna technique. Hi! Uh, You know, handed him something and uh, thought, maybe you'd give a little donation here. See, this is very ancient. Anyway, so Indra... Indra went to Didichi Muni and asked him, would you like to donate your body? And Didichi, who was this great Krishna conscious sage, said, sure, be happy to, you know, happy to chip it in. So, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that Didichi Muni was so ecstatic in Krishna consciousness that when he gave up his body, or when his body, you know, so, so to speak, died, he didn't even notice it. He did not lose consciousness. It's not like he blacked out and hoped, you know, he, he, he's going to wake up in some you know, Krishna conscious paradise. The point is, he didn't lose consciousness. Because if you are completely Krishna conscious, at the time of death, you don't lose consciousness. You just go seamlessly, in the cognitive sense, into your next adventure. There's this great story in the fourth canto. I spoke about Druva, who wanted a kingdom. We spoke about that story. And so one of the most beautiful scenes of the Druva story, what I really love, is that he was, finally, after he went back and he took the kingdom and, and um, had a great life and he married, uh, and he had a great wife and had children and so on. And finally, at the end of life, he just went back to his yoga practice. I mean, he lived a life, even as a king, he was serving Krishna. But at the end of life, he returned fully to his intense yoga practice and, and of course, became completely perfect in Krishna consciousness. And then this celestial craft came from the spiritual world, like this divine craft, this vessel just came down to carry him back to the spiritual world. Krishna's a class act. So, and then and when this craft landed, these, these divine beings were personal associates of Krishna. They were like, you know, like, glowing, like, like with this glaring effulgence. There were these glowing beings and they came to take Druva. So Druva went to board this divine vessel 
And just at that time, death personified approached him. That's the way it's described. Now, I've seen so many movies and everything where, like, you know, like, these long, bony hands of death, like, you know, Twilight Zone episodes and thing where, you know, death approaches someone. And, but here, so here is like one of those typical scenes where death, the grim reaper, is approaching someone. What does Druva do? It turns out that death is coming, not to try to scare Druva, who can't be frightened because he's a perfect yogi, but he to bow down to Druva, and death personified offers his head to Druva as a boarding stairway. And so Druva doesn't die like a frightened animal without knowledge, but he actually steps on the head of death and, and enters his eternal life. So, um, we have to prepare ourselves for the future. This, doesn't, this is not morbid. It doesn't mean that this life just becomes kind of like gloomy because I'm just preparing for death. Imagine, <laughs> let's, say, let's say you're in college. And so you're preparing for your future career. That means you take this class, not that class. I had to reluctantly give up a, an incredible course in basket weaving because... Anyway. <laughs> so you choose, you choose the courses you want. Because it, it, that's not more, but it's not gloomy like, oh my God, what's the use of being in college? Someday I'm going to graduate. <laughs> so if you are Krishna conscious, your so-called death, which is not your death at all because you don't die, but your so-called death is just your graduation. And, and it's, a, it's like, you know... Graduations are joyous affairs. The family gathers and friends, everyone's taking pictures and happy and applauding. Graduations are joyous affairs. In the same way, if you are serious about who you really are, then you're, when you leave this world, it's a, it's a joyful graduation. You know, and all the demigods are there taking pictures. Hey, can I... <laughs> and it, it's just a great thing. So that's the knowledge Krishna's talking about. You can directly experience this. That, that's what I was saying. Pratyakshavagamam. Pratyaksha means uh, like direct perception. Direct perception, pratyaksha. And avagamam, understanding. It's interesting. Actually, there, there are many idioms in Sanskrit which are similar to English, like idiomatic expressions. Like, for example, ava means downward, like avatara crossing down from a higher realm. And so, anga is just our English go. Same word. So, avagam is going down. It means to go deeply into something. I mean, just like in English, we say, like, I really, I really want to get deeply into this topic. It's the same thing in Sanskrit. So, to understand something deeply is avagam. To go deeply, to go down into something. So, that's the word Krishna uses here. Pratyakshavagamam, that you, you understand it deeply by direct experience. You directly experience it and get a deep understanding. And dharmya, it's virtuous. It's virtuous. It doesn't involve abandoning your ethical obligations. Rather, this process itself, this knowledge itself, makes you thoroughly virtuous. 
So, Pratyakshavagamam Dharmyam Susukam Kartum. And it's very happily, it's very joyful to, to, to do. Prabhupada once said, if you're practicing Krishna consciousness and you're not happy, you're doing something wrong. It's like they say, you know, like, well, before you take your computer back, make sure it was plugged in. Is your computer plugged in? Are you sure you turned it on? So, we, so before you give up Krishna consciousness, you know, did you plug in your device? In other words, you're really doing it seriously. <laughs> because Krishna says that it is very joyful to do. Susukam karatum. Abhiyam. And unperishing. Unperishing. Unchanging. It's not that you'll do this for a while and find out, well, actually it was something else, or... I mean, it's just, it, it, it never perishes. And Krishna also says in the Gita, that neha bhikrama nashosti neha bhikrama nashosti pratyavayo navidyate swabam api asya dharmasya trayate mahato bhaya that um, in this dharma Krishna says emphatically <coughs> Krishna uses the word dharma in different ways in the, in the Gita but when he's speaking about Krishna consciousness he says emphatically this dharma this path and so asya dharmasya Krishna says there is no uh, there's no loss. In other words, let's say you're trying to practice Krishna consciousness, you're doing your best. And so you you know, so you, you reach sometimes you reach these high points where you really you know, you have your good days, you're really devotional and you're even sane and so on. And so you reach a certain level of consciousness. And then let's say other days aren't as good or this happens or that happens and then you have like little well, it's sort of like half-time intermission when you're, you know, not at your, really on the field there. But what Krishna says is that whatever is your highest level of achievement in Krishna consciousness, that is yours eternally. That is yours to keep forever, and you will be brought back to that point. There's no loss. That neha bhikram anashosti pratyavayo, and it will never decrease. It will never be lost. And then he says, even very little, literal translation, su alpam api. Su means very, alp means little, and api means even. Even very little, asya dharmasya, of this dharma, trayate. It will deliver you. And by the way, this is the same tra as in, uh, no, it's not the same. So, trayate mahatobaya, it will deliver you from the great danger. The word vaya means fear, but also danger. It will deliver you from the great danger. What is the great danger? That having achieved a human life, you don't utilize it, because human life is very much use it or lose it. And some people, because of their sort of, I don't know, humanistic hubris, believe that... Um, just because at, at the present time I'm in a human body, I'm eternally better than all other souls in lower bodies. In other words, I could never have a lower body. I could never, I could never go down. Well, yes, you could. Just like you can live in a big house and then you can end up in a small house. And that happens all the time in this world. So you can... Uh, so yes, 
But you just said it's never lost. Oh, okay. So, but if you're in a human body, that means you got to a certain level, right. doesn't it? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What Krishna is saying is here. Good point. Glad someone sharp. What Krishna is saying is that even very little of Krishna consciousness will protect you from that. That won't happen to you. That's what he's saying. Chayate, it'll it'll deliver you from that that great danger. So that that won't happen to you. Otherwise, we should not vainly flatter ourselves by thinking that we are spiritually greater than souls and other bodies. We're not. So if you're living totally without Krishna consciousness in this life, you could come back as a worm or something. Would you rather be a worm? It's, for example, uh, let's say someone is, I mean, as you know, there's so much barbarism nowadays in the world. So some people really pride themselves on being like... Angry. Yeah, like wildcats, you know. Or or, or or just being sexy. I mean, they just like like being bestial. Bestiality is in. And so if someone is sort of proud of being like unashamed, like I can just do it with no shame, with no inhibition, I am, you know, I am so cool, I am so bestial. Okay. You know, your wish is my command. That's what Krishna's saying. Yeah, and there's some animal. If someone, because human life, because the great thing, I mean, among many great things about Krishna, he doesn't force himself on people. He doesn't force himself on people. If someone, and he's not, he's not a jealous God, it doesn't hurt his feelings, he just, it's like, whatever you want. If someone, let's say, really wants to be promiscuous, like, that's what I want, and you tell the person, well, actually, look at your human body, and your brain is actually bigger than your reproductive organ. So, you're actually meant to get spiritual knowledge. You're actually meant to get spiritual knowledge. Someone says, I'm not into that. I'm into, you know, something else. Fine. Krishna says, no problem. I honor your freedom. And I will give you a body where you can, you know, just be incredibly uh, bestial. Yeah. Krishna is just reciprocating. This is what you said you wanted. You lived your life in such a way as if that was much more important than spiritual knowledge. So you you chose. I'm just reciprocating. That's what Krishna says in the Gita. Krishna doesn't get mad at people. Krishna is not offended like you didn't worship me, I'm a jealous God. You're you're toast, dude. It's it's not like that. Krishna is just saying that I'm reciprocating. This is what you wanted. So uh, but Krishna says even a very little Krishna uh, Krishna consciousness will save you from that. Anyway uh, so any questions? It's just such a beautiful verse here in the Gita. So a- any question at all on these topics? Yes? Do you mean by exactly Krishna consciousness? Do you mean God conscious in general or uh, dedication, practice? What do you mean by that? Okay. Well, first of all, it means to be conscious of Krishna. It's a literal term. God conscious? Well... Uh, if we say God and examine the information content of that word and then we examine the information content of the word Krishna we find that you could say they mean the same thing 
anyone anywhere in the world who's trying to worship God, sure, same God. But when we say Krishna, it just it means a lot more. There's just a lot more information being in that word. Someone who's like sincerely trying to see God in a different religion. Of course, they, of course, they get credit for that. Of course, they get credit for that. According to their according to their sincerity, and Krishna will, will reciprocate with them. Of course, the, of course, it, it's good. Of course, the, it's, it's rewarded. But Krishna says also in the Bhagavad Gita that four kinds of people approach me. Chaturvidha, Bhajante, Mang, Jana, Supriti, And he says, and they're all good people because they're approaching God. So one is Artha, someone who is... We went over this the other day, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry for the rerun. We're in the I Love Lucy portion of our... <laughs> so, he has explained it to you. <laughs> so, um... Let's say someone's suffering, they pray to God for relief. So that's pious. They get points for that. But again, their real goal is not to know God. It's just to... They believe there's a God and they're, they're looking for help. For example, let's say now there was unfortunately there was a flood in the Northeast, so people were, let's say, calling FEMA. Uh, Federal Emergency Management. Agency. What? Agency. Agency, Agency. that's right. Agency. So... Um, so yeah, they're anxious to call FEMA, and apparently, you know, I mean, by anyway, lucky coincidence, six days before the election, Obama really got on this. I'm sure he would have anyway. I'm not saying that. I'm not being cynical, but he, it is six days before the election. He really got on it. So, so everyone's grateful that the federal government was cooperating so well. It doesn't mean they. Ultimately, that once the emergency is over, they're just they're going to like develop a lifelong loving relationship with the bureaucrats that work at FEMA. <laughs> I mean, people can't fall in love in disaster relief. I'm sure it's happened in the past, but it's not normal. <laughs> so, if someone says God, and of course, there's one God. Anyone that says God, they're talking about the same person, and 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 it is. It is very much appreciated by God. But here is additional information. So if your question is, is it better to know more than to know less? Yeah, it is. It is better. It doesn't mean a person knows less is a bad person. That person also has knowledge and should be respected for the knowledge they have. But if you can learn more about God... Now a lot of people actually, to be honest, don't want to know more about God. It's like, no, I think I'm, I'm good. <laughs> some people, for example, why would someone be attracted to it? There are people who are deeply attracted to the idea that God is unknowable. Think about that. What kind of psychology is operating there? I am so glad that you can't know God. That made my day. Well, yeah, part of the problem there is that, that many, 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 many people <laughs> are taught that you can't know God. They're told that from yeah. from the from the get go, mm-hmm. so they internalize that that tape, and they play it out. I mean, they never really. I, I, I've often thought that it's curiosity, some kind of internal karmic curiosity, that enables someone to break out of whatever box they were put in to find the more that you're talking about. That's a good point. It's a very good point. I just add a little something to that. 
I think that, um, just based on my own experience, having been a leader in a religious-slash-spiritual society for two-thirds of my life or more, oh my God, take this note to my lawyer. <laughs> anyway, um, in a spiritual-religious society, of course, let's say, let's say a high priest, a priest or a high priest, or something, you know, whatever you call it, a guru, has this position of authority. As, you know, it's like God's representative. And there's a tendency to become annoyed by the idea that like, there's more to know that you don't know. So it's like, okay, I don't know who God is, so therefore you don't know, and you're not supposed to know. And anyone that claims they know is silly, because I don't know. So, but people, I mean, what you said is true. I, 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 you know, I, I accept it as a true point. But you do get, but I, I do meet people, let's say, who are educated people. They're not just kind of like simple, true-believing members of a congregation. You know, they even think themselves intellectual sometimes. And they really are adamant about this point, that you can't know God. So it, 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 in addition to, let's say, having heard this, they really like want to go to the mat on this point. Like, in fact, they, they, they really, you know, almost resent the idea that someone claims to know more about God. And they like it that way. I mean, and there's a lot of people out there who are just couldn't be happier with the state of affairs where we don't know God. And God is unknowable. Because if you know too much about God, it can be decentering. Most people, the way I put it, most people, even if they are not philosophical atheists, are psychological atheists, in the sense that they are self-centered. So to live in a world, psychologically, not philosophically, but to live in a psychological world where you are the center of reality is sort of like atheism. It's not... Because, of course, God is the center. Not me or not you. So, if you know too much about God, it's, um... I did, for example... Well, anyway, I'll give that example. <laughs> so, uh, people really... Like, like you can walk up to people on the street and say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, uh, apparently there's a really interesting information about God that's become available to us. Would you like to know about it? Let's see what happens. <laughs> I mean, some people may be interested, but a lot of people will just say, I don't want to know. I'm not interested. So, um, so now that all this knowledge is becoming available of who God actually is, uh, like, let's say, for example, let's say you have a job and you're working as a, let's say, a bank teller. Anybody ever a bank teller? No? Okay. We'll go with this one. Let's say, let, let's say you're a bank teller and someone comes in and, you know, makes your deposit or withdrawal or whatever they do. And let's say they even come in once a month or something so you kind of know them. There's a little recognition there. And, uh... Maybe the customers smile and they're friendly, but they really you're just the bank teller, and, and they're, they don't really want to know about your life and everything. And so a lot of people just like God. Okay, you know God is God, and it's nice to know that somehow there's something out there. And 
They really want to leave it at that. They really want to leave it at that. The number of people who really have that drive, I want to know about God. Because God is the greatest thing. And the source of my existence. So I really, I, I, I just, I want to know. Krishna says that person is very, is rare. That person is rare. And so Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada, when he named ISKCON, someone said to him, why don't you just call it God consciousness? Hmm. Actually, why don't you call it the International Society of God Consciousness? Prabhupada thought about it and said, no, I think I'll say Krishna consciousness. Because of course Krishna is God and God is Krishna. However, uh, why hide him? So when we say Krishna consciousness, we mean that. We mean that. And if someone prefers a word which sort of says less about God, <coughs> that's okay. You know, whatever they're comfortable with, but it's but why should we retreat from a term which says so much? And which places Krishna firmly in the center. Yes, Hannah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, not at all. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, so it, it sounds like for sure you've encountered people who are more comfortable with a like a less defined conception of God, and and so when you encounter someone like that, like let's say someone who who otherwise is quite favorable to learning and, and inquiry, but but prefers to think maybe of God as, as formless and not so defined, um, what do you choose to share with them about Krishna consciousness to benefit them or reach them or What's your what's your priority? Do you do? Well, the first priority is just to do what's best for that person, and so if trying to force feed them is going to cause them to regurgitate Vedic wisdom and have it splattered all over your face, then <laughs> so obviously we I mean we can't be self righteous like no you know you're going to hear this whether you like it or not. The priority is to help that person. And so whatever the market will bear, we should be kind, we should, and so we should do for each person the best that's possible to do for that person. And keep them favorable and keep, you know, keep everything happy. And it may just be a little card inviting them to go Vindas. It often is. Yes, yeah, so I would say, I mean, you're an intelligent person, so, and, and Prabhupada said, discrimination is realization. So as we chant Hare Krishna, and Krishna gives us intelligence, then we just we just do the best we can for each person, whatever that is. Yes? You uh, use the word unknowable and kind of this negative connotation. But isn't there something sort of you know, magical about mystery. So, in the sense that, you know, when you pray to a god, God doesn't pray back. It's one-way communication to an extent. Sort of like, you know, when you go to a therapist, your therapist doesn't talk about himself the whole time. It's one-way communication. And that kind of just shows an unselfish God, doesn't it? Very interesting points, okay. Good. Okay, I want to get into this. This is a very interesting point you raised. So, so the first one was oh the the mystery the the, the appeal of the mysterious. Um, 
can't remember where I was. It was somewhere and I was giving a talk. Uh, I was making this point that um, imagine if you heard about someone, let's say father or mother, some of that children, parents, that never, ever allowed their children to see them. I would find that very strange. I would think the parents were really not well mentally. There was something even like almost sadistic about them. So, mystery, do we really fall in love with mysteries? I mean, mystery can be, mystery can be enticing, it can sort of arouse our interest. But the enchantment, the power of the mystery, is to find out what the mystery is. So that let's say, for example, Mona Lisa, like why is she smiling? Maybe she just, you know, <laughs> had a good meal or something. Just so, but if you, if you think of like, like what's been called the feminine mystique, and the, you know, and how men succumb to the feminine mystique, and they... But really, the power of a mysterious female, the power is the man wants to discover the mystery. The power of it is not like, oh, good, for the rest of my life I'll never understand the person I'm living with. <laughs> yeah, of course, he later finds out. That's <laughs> so, so mystery draws us in precisely because we want to solve it. As far as the one-way communication, um, no, actually, it's not one-way. Let's say you went to a therapist and just talked, and the therapist said, thanks. <laughs> I mean, if the therapist never says anything, why pay the guy? I mean, sure, I'll let everyone in the world come and tell, you know, talk, 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 and leave your check. I won't tell you a word. It's actually, there may be a time when therapist lets you talk, but ultimately what you're paying for is that hopefully the therapist will say something intelligent that will actually help you. As far as one-way communication, it, let, let's say if someone comes to me and says, please help me, and I just sort of s sit there like the sphinx, you know, like the stone face, and didn't you hear what I said? I just hold up a sign, one-way communication. <laughs> it's a... Uh, I don't think good people do that. Yeah, good therapists. I mean, you know some things about them. I mean, they do share some things about their life. I mean, not to the same extent that you are. But even if they don't talk, but, but I mean, you, as you correctly said, I, I'm not, I, I don't in any way mean to make fun of what you said. I'm just, I'm just exploring. So if, if someone, let's say a therapist doesn't talk about themselves, but they'll talk about you. But they will talk. So it's a two-way communication. And, let's say, but... If it remains on that professional level, like I go to a therapist, this is a professional relationship, I'm not coming here to hear about the therapist, I'm just paying money because I want to hear a therapist tell me about myself. But is that really as high as, as a relationship can go? In terms of our capacity to love, our capacity to be loved, our capacity to share and to unite with another person on all levels, you know, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, is that really as good as it gets? A professional relationship where I pay a fee and someone tells me about myself? I mean, obviously not. And so, 
if we understand that God is a person, that God is a perfect person, then that means that in God there is supreme empathy. There is supreme love. There is supreme wit. There is all these qualities that we value. In other words, whatever we place a positive value on, whether it's intelligence, charm, beauty, strength, everything that we place a positive value on exists infinitely in Krishna. And desire to be in relationship. I mean, because people desire, to, you know, people desire to be in relationship. They do, although in this, although in this world, we're needy. It's like, I feel incomplete. Yeah. Krishna doesn't feel incomplete because technically he's everything. Because everything that exists, exists within God. So God is not needy. And actually, we... How should I put it? There is a natural relationship among all beings. We are all related. We are all related. And so when we realize ourselves, we really understand who we are, we realize that, that the relationships are all there. The relationships are all there. What we don't experience, let's say in a pure stage, is the need that we do in this world. I need to be the most important person in somebody's life. Or, I want to be the most important person in somebody's life. Whereas in Krishna consciousness, we think, actually, Krishna is the most important person in your life. And my real love for you, if in fact I actually love you, my real love for you is that I want to help you to realize that the most important person in your life is Krishna. So that vanity we have, actually, that I want to be the most important person in somebody's life <coughs> is something that um, a pure soul doesn't experience, and certainly not Krishna. Because it's not really possible. You know? No. I mean, it's not really possible. And that's why people don't want to too much about God, because, for example, everyone wants to be good-looking. I mean, maybe there's a few people with exceptional psychologies that for some reason you know, want to be homely or ugly or something, but, but most people would prefer to be attractive. There are very few cases people do cosmetic surgery because I'm much too good looking. <laughs> so, so if I, let, let's say I consider my, let's say I consider myself to be attractive. I mean, that's pushing it my age. But, but let's say, for example, through some stretch of, let's say I suspend disbelief, as I say, <laughs> and I think that I'm attractive. So, in that case, don't tell me that God is infinitely good-looking because it's about me. And sure, I'm pious, I want God to be there, I believe that someone in that great somewhere hears every word of that song. I believe. It was a popular song in the 60s. Sure, it's nice to have God there. It's nice to know there's some God up there. Someone's looking out after me. Someone's got my back. When I die, someone's going to scoop me up and save me from nothingness and all that. All that's nice. But when it comes to strutting, when it comes to, like, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, I think I want to be the fairest of them all. And so that's why, no, I don't want to know about a God that's 
the most beautiful of all beings. I don't want to know about a God who's the most charming. I don't want to know about a God who's the center of everything. I don't, know, I don't want to know about a God who's the greatest poet, the greatest musician. Because I want to sort of fantasize that I could be that. But in fact, the pure soul, when, when we really become pure, I mean, now it seems so natural to us. Like, sure, I want attention. I want to be recognized. I want to excel. I want, and all that. It's just so natural that we just assume to, to live, to exist is to want attention or to want to be recognized. But actually, as pure souls, we don't. Because as pure souls, we are fully satisfied in ourselves. This is called Atma-Rama. It's a key term, actually, in the Bhagavatam. Atma-Rama. Uh, Atma means in the self, in the soul. And Arama, like taking pleasure, delighting. Krishna talks about this in the Gita, that Atma-Ratis, uh, one who finds all love and pleasure in the self. Not loving yourself, but you find that love, you find that pleasure, you find satisfaction. Atma-Santushta. Satisfaction, pleasure, everything you find within yourself. And so, let's say you're really hungry, and all you've got is one cheese sandwich, or if you're vegan, one tofu sandwich. But that's all you've got, and an apple. And you're really hungry, you're starving, and someone comes up to you and says, I am so hungry, and starts looking at your sandwich. It's... But let's say, for example, you're stuffed. Let's say you can't eat anymore, and someone, and someone comes and says, do you mind if I have that shirt? Take it. In other words, people who are self-satisfied, people who are completely full in themselves, have the luxury, have the power just to be good to others. Like, I can be good to you. I don't need anything from you. I don't need your money. I don't need your praise. I don't need you to fall in love with me. I don't need anything. I'm doing great. If I can help you in some way, I'm glad to do it. That's real power. That's real freedom. Because unless I can somehow become full in myself, what's this talk about freedom? And that's the nature of God, the nature of all souls. Then, then you're free to love. You can actually, when, I, when, when we are full in ourselves, we can actually love another person purely. And it has nothing to do with what they do. I mean, whether they love you back is inconsequential, right? Yeah. It has nothing to do with their behaviors or their anything. Like yeah, you may, as so well stated by Jane Austen, you know, Jane. She said that um, she has a very interesting remark in her book Emma. Jane Austen is very Krishna conscious, but anyway, she um, in, in Emma she has she makes a statement where we should have universal goodwill, but friendship, in the sense of like really serious friendship, is not universal in this sense. For example, Prabhupada said, we love all beings, but we don't embrace a tiger. And so there's this beautiful verse, Bhakti Yotaka wrote in Bengali, Sanskritic Bengali, that Sakale Saman Korite Shakati Dehonata Jatayata. It's a prayer to the Guru, and of course to the Guru to Krishna. Please give me the power 
to honor everyone appropriately. So you may honor one person by embracing them, but that's not the way you honor a rattlesnake or a tiger. And so there are certain people who are a little toxic. In other words, if I get close to them, they will... It, it's, not, it's not healthy. So I love that person. In other words, we, we love everyone because everyone is part of God, and we, and we sincerely try to do what's best, but for some people, what's best for them is to keep them at a certain distance. Because if we let them come too close to us, they will offend they will do things which ultimately will harm them. Say more about that. Will ultimately harm them. Well... Because we think it would harm us, but you just said it would harm them. Yeah. I mean, why did Jesus say, don't throw your pearls before swine? First of all, it's a, it's a waste of good pearls. <laughs> you could donate to your local Google's, right? <laughs> but, um... According to the laws of the universe, which we can call the laws of karma, which are simply justice, it, it's simply cosmic justice. Whatever I do to others comes back to me. So if I do good to others, good comes back to me. So if someone offends for no good reason, if someone mistreats, if someone abuses, that they are creating their own future suffering. And if someone offends a person who is serving God, it's, it's even worse. It's like if you run over someone in, in a highway work zone. You know, because they're working for the government and you're supposed to slow down. You all know that. So, so if someone is genuinely, genuinely, sincerely serving God and trying to help all beings, trying to help all beings and you offend or harm that person, it's serious. So, uh, so by staying out, so by not, by staying away from those kind of people, you know, you, you limit their ability to harm themselves. Harm you. Well, it's not really and, and, and also they may harm us because, because but, we, yeah, we are still but, works in progress. And we are not completely invulnerable. And therefore, if we enter into relationships with people who are not able, simply not able, to reciprocate with us in, in appropriate ways, then it will also it will disturb our life, our spiritual practice, and it will ultimately disturb their life. And so, to love someone doesn't mean... To, well, to love someone means just to do whatever is best. Sincerely. But that doesn't necessarily mean to draw everyone into an intimate relationship because that can be disastrous for everyone. So do you just do you just you know, like pray for their evolvement or do you just know that they'll evolve at Sure, you can pay? pray you can pray for them, you can give them a card to Govinda's <laughs> buy them a little gift certificate in his restaurant. So any other? I mean, did, are you? Did you want to pursue your points, or? I, I can. Yeah, yeah, please feel free. Yeah, um, okay. Knowing God, you know, 
Prabhupada said in Self-Realization, uh, a kid in a school in the UK, if he was being taught about Germany, he'd have to take his teacher at their word in order to just imagine what uh, Germany is like. But the difference is that, you know, we have photos of Germany. People go to Germany and they come back. So there's more description of it. Okay. I think a better parallel would be for me to say to you, uh, think of a new color. That's a challenge. And you have points of references, like there are colors all around. But with your senses the way they are, because, you know, it's, colors are just how our brains cells fire in a certain pattern, and that's how we interpret colors. So we have a point of reference. But because our point of reference is, you know, ultimately so small, we can't really understand everything. So... Okay, well, let me, let me take a few of those, because, I mean, they're all good points. There's a lot to say about that. Um, first of all, about our... Our, our, ref, our, our range, let's say, our cognitive range being small. Actually, we're all originally divine beings. And therefore, we actually have almost practically unlimited cognitive powers. The problem is we're not accessing them. We're not using them. We're not developing them. So ultimately, uh, we're capable of almost limitless cognition. The first point you made was, oh, Germany. Deutschland. Um, here you have a situation where many great teachers are telling us, yes, we have seen Krishna, we know Krishna. Now you may want to photograph, <laughs> but um, Krishna is not material. Krishna's not material, and um, Krishna has established certain criteria, qualification to know him. For example, if you want to get into an Ivy League college, they have certain criteria. And so you could say, no, you shouldn't have that criteria. But they do. And so if you want to go to their college, and, and, and they have, for example, you should get certain types of scores on SAT tests, you should have certain grades, you should have this, you should have that. So, Krishna has established a certain criteria. He says that, that if you do certain things, then you deserve to see me. Now, my experience of, of listening to Prabhupada, sitting at Prabhupada's feet and hearing him speak, my experience of chanting Hare Krishna, the experiences I have of Krishna can only be rationally explained by concluding that Krishna is there. It's simply there's no other rational way, there's no other reasonable way for me to explain what I've experienced other than to say that Krishna is actually there. And so, in my mind, uh, the English teacher speaking about Germany is a valid comparison. First of all, because so many people have come and told us. And secondly, what, what, if, what if the teacher actually invites me to do a year abroad in Germany? What if other students have gone abroad and come back and said, yeah, I went there, it's really there, it's really a great country. Remember that you can talk about photographs, but 
All I have to do is go back, let's say, 150 years when they have no photography. Or however many years exactly is. So English teachers, or I mean teachers in England, were telling students about Germany and students were believing it long before photography. And in fact, Prabhupada invited all of us to go see for yourself. As George Harrison said when, when he paid to print Prabhupada's Krishna book, and he said, the proof is in the pudding. So Prabhupada said, Krishna's there, chant Hare Krishna, do certain things, serve, and you'll realize Krishna. I accepted that offer, and I found that, yes, I am knowing Krishna. It's a gradual process. We learn about Krishna more and more, but I'm absolutely getting what I paid for. So, I think there is an analogy. As far as the, like, perceiving color, I just can't, I mean, I know it's late, but I just have to throw this in. Uh, there is a widespread silliness in the world at the present time. Thinking that, for example, it is atmospheric scientists that really know why, they know why the sky is blue. And I'll explain why that's so silly. To think that scientists are the ones who know why, why the sky is blue. Or what color is. Um, well, Socrates. Plato's Socrates. Um, Socrates was sitting on his cot just before he drank the hemlock. The Phaedo. Same with the dialogue. And he made a crucial distinction, brilliant distinction, between how and why. He said, if someone asks, why is Socrates sitting here on this cot in this prison? Because actually, when the government of Athens condemned an Athenian citizen to death, you weren't really supposed to die. You were supposed to bribe someone to escape and never come back. It was a way of banishing you. A death sentence in Athens was really banishment. And... In the, in the dialogue called Crito, the friends of Socrates actually come to him and say, it's all arranged. You know, we bribed everyone, the boat's waiting. And Socrates shocks everyone by saying, I'm going to stay and, and, and be executed. And the reason he gives is that because uh, I entered into a social contract with Athens, I want honor, and I want to be honorable and I enjoy the benefits of the city, so I'll accept their judgments. However, wacky. So, but in any case, when the Phaedo, it's Socrates' last day on earth, he's in you know, his last philosophy class. And he says, if someone asks, why is Socrates sitting on this cot? And someone else answers, because his body is made in such a way that it bends at the joints and therefore he's sitting there. No, that's not why I'm sitting here. That's how I'm sitting here. Why I'm sitting here is because I decided to honor my social contract with Athens. Similarly, there is no atmospheric scientist in the world who, as a scientist, knows why the sky is blue. They know how the sky is blue. And confusing the words how and why is dumb. For example, if I say to you, why did you come? And you say, I drove. You didn't understand the question. If I say, how did you come? And you said, I was curious. You didn't understand the question. So, consider a great work of art hanging on the wall of some museum. A great work of art. If I ask a simple question, 
who actually, or, or who more deeply understands that great work of art? A brilliant art historian or a paint chemist? Because according to the idea of modern scientists, it's the paint chemist who really understands that painting. Which is nonsense. I mean, he, the, the paint chemist knows something about it, even something important. But a painting is teleological. That means it, it has an objective purpose. So that all the paint is, why is the paint there? Why, for example, let, let's say there's a work of art where the sky is brown. The paint chemist doesn't know why the sky is brown. Paint chemist knows how it's brown. It's the art historian that knows why it's brown. And actually, the artist made it brown not because to obey some law of chemistry, but because the artist is trying to say something. And so it's the art historian that's really communicating with the artist. So, God made the sky blue. So it's a Krishna conscious, or God conscious in this case, person, who knows why the sky is blue. Unless you understand God, you have no idea why the sky is blue. Because Krishna is a great artist and he made it blue. Because blue, blue is beautiful. It's, it's like you know, celestial blue, they would call it that. It's a great choice. But why are why and how in competition with each other? They're not. Um, they're not until, until materialistic scientists want to collapse why into how. That's called epistemological imperialism. The scientists say, some of them, some of them are very nice and go to church and everything, but there, but there is a group of materialistic people, actually humanities professors tend to be more atheistic than science professors, because they're, you know, they're like Avis, they have to try harder. But anyway, so, I heard as a child, we now know why the sky is blue. It's explicitly materialistic philosophers have been trying to destroy metaphysics. That was, that was a conscious plan. There was a circle of Vienna, you know, around 1920, where these great European philosophers met and decided they needed to declare war on metaphysics and do away with it and just sort of reduce it to rubble so there's nothing but materialism. That was an explicit project. And their position is that why means how, and, and, and the word why is unintelligible, except in the sense of asking how. Because if you say why, in the sense of asking for a purpose, there are no objective purposes. There's only the blind forces of nature. Everything evolves by blind forces. And therefore, to ask for an objective purpose in the universe, outside of human subjective intentions, is meaningless. Yeah, because, and, and Western medicine is an example of how. Western medicine just operates on the whole question of how, how your body works, yes. or how, you know, the mechanistic way that things are, or that we live. <laughs> wow. That's a great example. Yes, exactly. So we're all, we're all for the how thing. I mean, I mean, for example, if I'm sick, I pray to Krishna that, you know, some brilliant scientist figured this one out. <laughs> I am I am sincerely grateful for all the science that helps us, for the conveniences, 
you know, that my computer works and I can actually communicate, tell people about Krishna through various means. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for science. I'm grateful for all this help, whether it's medical science, whatever. They just should not be imperialistic and think they can just subjugate every other field of knowledge. Well, neither should be imperialistic. True, but Krishna consciousness, you're right. I mean, it's, it's well taken. And it is a fact that during the Protestant Reformation, people like Luther were kind of like down on science. And therefore, one of Luther's uh, mottos was sola scriptura, only scripture. We don't need any other source of knowledge. You know, you know, with this big science-religion split in the West, it's the church that first filed the divorce papers. <laughs> Otherwise, before that, it was just like, there's one thing, knowledge. And there's knowing the soul, there's knowing the universe, there's knowing this, there's knowing that. It was just, there were just different aspects of knowledge. This, 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 this rivalry, this war between science and religion is, is an artificial thing, which should be overcome. There's an interesting poem in Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. It's uh, from, it's called uh, the, the Learned Astronomer. Or I heard from the Learned Astronomer. And it's a short poem, as most, most of the poems are. A lot of them are you're just really... But uh, he, he's describing this scene where he's in the, the, the college or university or whatever, listening to the Learned Astronomer, and he's just... Uh, Finally, gets fed up with the, the the scales and the you know the, the, all the stuff that goes on with the science until I just walked out into the sky or walked out into the world and looked up at the sky and beheld you know so he's it's this interesting dance between science and the rational explanation of what is up there and then just the uh, observing it yeah. And being with there has to be mutual respect. Yeah. I mean, when I go to a doctor, if, if, if I think the doctor is competent, then, then I respect that person's knowledge, and I'm grateful. So similarly, uh, people should be grateful for legitimate spiritual knowledge and not try to uh, destroy it or, or just deny it. For example, what is it? There, there's one scholar, there, there's a few scholars, actually, actually senior scholars, one in America, one in England, they came up with this theory of a soul there's somehow, anyway, they got this sophisticated physiological thing that somehow information's embedded and, and when you die, it actually goes, that's why people have near-death experience. And, you know, they think they're, because actually there's somehow this massive, like, a neurological cognition or whatever, it actually can survive the universe. Whatever. I mean, it's still materialism. It's not really like embracing the notion of a soul, but still, they're using the word soul, and they're talking about there could be something like a soul, or which people have called a soul, which survives the death of the body. Oh my God, it was there a, a, a human cry. You know, the really heavy materialistic scientists, they just like, you know, they just immediately go on the warpath against us just to use the word soul. So they really are obnoxious, a lot of these people. And uh, they really do want to stamp out what they consider to be this, you know, primitive superstition called spirituality. And so even if, let's say, religion fired the first shot back in the 1500s or something, I mean, they, 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 you know, they, yeah. And of course, many of them aren't that way. There are many scientists that attend science and religious conferences trying to find harmony. So there's a whole movement to find reconciliation. So, it's, so there's all kinds of good things going on, too.
But ultimately, we, we should restore, frankly, the, the, um, the old Renaissance consensus that there is one thing which is knowledge and there's different aspects of knowledge. There's knowing the soul, there's knowing the atom, there's knowing geography, there's just, there's just different aspects of knowledge. They're not at war with each other. Religion is not trying to stamp out science and science is not trying to stamp out religion. Have you heard that phenomenon that um, transplant donor that they discovered in the whole concept of trans organ transplantation that um, with organ transplantation when donors are getting the Heart. when recipients are getting the donor organs they begin having experiences after the after the transplant that are from the donor's no. life like all of a sudden they start craving um, like fried chicken and doing different things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Find out that yeah, that could be, I guess, conditioning, which is embedded in. Anyway, it's getting a little late, so perhaps we'll uh, end here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Hey, how are you doing? Vidananda Daska Swami Ki.